Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Trump's former chief of staff, John Kelly, says Trump's, quote unquote, scared shitless. We have a fantastic show today. The Daily Beast confider newsletter author Lachlan Cartwright stops by to tell us about the shakeups at CNN and the media's coverage of Trump. Then we'll talk to The Washington Post's Paul Kane about the chaos inside the GOP's congressional class. But first, we have the one, the only, the author of Too Much and Never Enough. The Mary Trump shows. Mary Trump. So welcome back to Fast Politics. Mary Trump. Mary Trump. Molly Jongfast. Molly Jongfast. <laughs> We're at this moment in the state of our nation and the state of our lives with Donald Trump where I feel like it's so bad I have to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I witness me laughing right now. What else are you going to do? Right. I mean, you have to laugh because otherwise you'll cry. Yeah. It's very difficult to get a little bit of space from things to the extent that that's possible. And then to be dragged back in by this bizarre spectacle and another stark reminder about how badly the mainstream media fails us time after time. And also to be reminded that people really don't get it. I, I mean, there are, there are people whose opinions I respect and, and whose views I value going out there talking about how we be- have to bend over backwards to, you know, treat Donald as innocent before proven guilty and, and make sure that uh, he is treated like any other person in his position as if th- there ever has been. But I mean, that suggests that he's not being treated fairly or rather that there is this double standard and he's suffering at the hands of that double standard. But Molly, I mean, Jesus Christ, has anybody been treated better or less fairly in the sense that it always redounds to his benefit? He left there a free man able to do whatever he wants. You and I would be imprisoned for the rest of our lives pending trial. Right. I mean, that is the incredible thing about Trumpism is that Trump has somehow convinced. And again, like, I feel like the top line here is democracy dies in stupid. Right. This guy, reality television host who paints himself orange, has convinced the entire Republican Party, including the grownups, quote unquote, that 
somehow him getting in trouble for refusing to return classified documents and telling lawyers to lie about it and showing these classified documents to other people is somehow convinced them that this is in some way an affront to him. Yeah, uh, there's that for sure. And, and the fact that none of the several dozen now other candidates for the Republican nomination don't seem to be able to find a way to use his vast criminality and treasonous behavior against him. But, you know, again, there's also on the left a reluctance to be very clear about what's going on here. And this is frustrating for lay people like me because I I don't have to worry about the niceties of uh, the legal system. We know he's guilty, not only because we saw it with our own eyes and heard it with our own ears, the evidence has been unfolding in front of us for over two years now. And it's just maddening how the emphasis seems to be on just making sure everything's fair for Donald. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. If you were just to look at the case, just the documents case, right? Mike Pence had accidentally, let's just say they accidentally took home, you know, Mike Pence accidentally took documents. Joe Biden accidentally took documents. They returned them period, uh-huh. paragraph. Donald Trump, again, took many, many boxes. Maybe there was an accident, okay? I mean, I, I very hard time believing that from the fact that he then told Mark Meadows' biographer, right? <laughs> well, that was who he was talking to. He told someone, I have all these secret documents. I could have declassified <laughs> them, but now I'm not. Look, they're secret, secret. You know, um, Russell Paper. I mean, what you know, what, these are crimes. They're not just crimes because... Donald Trump is very popular. No, no. And again, when has this man ever faced the consequences of his actions? Never. There's always somebody there to bail him out. So it's almost as if that that aura of invincibility means to many people that he should always be able to crime with no consequences. Right. Uh, It's completely insane. And also what gets left out of the conversation, and this is the part I just do not understand, there's a very real possibility that American allies or American people in this, this Secret Service were, had their lives endangered right. by his actions. Right, 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 exactly. And, you know, we're talking, we're not just talking about the stubborn refusal to follow the rules, right? right? Because he doesn't think the rules apply to him. We're not just talking about that. And by the way, that's enough. That's serious enough to for him to be spending decades in prison. We're talking about treason of the highest level here. And the undermining of American national security, which is ongoing. So that the idea that this is all about spectacle and making sure that, you know, cameras have to be there to see when he leaves the driveway and when he pulls up and when he gets out of the car, right, right, right. it just makes it like it's it's flashbacks to the, the empty podiums and the tarmacs, planes idling on tarmacs in 2016. But it's worse because there's so much more at stake now. Right. I mean, this is this is the thing that I'm struck by is that we here is a man who has won the attention economy. Right. He has dominated. You know, what he did in 2015 was he got all the media. And actually, I read a statistic that he had, you know, some billion dollar, hundreds of millions of dollars in free media, right? That he had somehow, he had gotten so much free media from his Howard Stern sort of shock jockey kind of stuff that he had sort of won on that, right? And as you watch the car to the tarmac, the tarmac to the jet, the jet to the, I mean, nobody needs to see this. And it is just helping the Donald Trump brand. Yeah. One, because, you know, they think that just his very existence is more important than anything else. That was one of the signs in 2016 that we were headed for trouble. There's Hillary Clinton giving a very substantive, very important policy uh, speech. And nobody showed it because they were waiting for Donald to come (laughs) and, like I don't know, sell bottled water or something. So it is quite something. Even worse, though, we have them cutting from their analysis to his lawyer, who's not even a lawyer on this case, 
speaking to reporters and lying through her teeth about everything. Alina Haba. Alina Haba, who, (laughs) you know, up until Donald hired her, was operating out of a strip mall somewhere in New Jersey. Right. No context, no analysis of all everything she lied about. I mean, just say President Biden hates America. Right. And if you if you hate Donald Trump, you hate America because the two have become equated in these people's minds. And then you've got uh, people, even people like Rachel Maddow saying, you know, we need to kind of deal with Donald and, you know, just we'll we'll drop the charges as long as he doesn't run or something. In what universe is that justice? Right. Well, and also the other thing is that there's no mechanism for that. I mean, the thing that I'm so struck by is that what has happened is we've never had someone who is so good at criming that, <laughs> you know, and so, cr- you know, we always had some, you know, we've always had a president or someone, you know, where they've, you know, where they've sort of been Abraham, Lincoln, not Abraham Lincoln, but George Washington asked, you know, I'm going to take the high road, even Nixon, you know, and the guy is a criminal. Even Nixon is like, I guess it's time to go. Right. But we have someone here who's like his thing is he gets away with it. And so he has decided he's going to get away with it. I think What's interesting as you look at these, I mean, there's just no precedence for any of this, right? We're at state indictments, federal indictments. There's more state indictments coming. I mean, there's never been a situation where you have like a real legal world and then you have this guy who's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. And it, it it shows you how dangerous it is not to hold people accountable in real time instead of, you know, waiting for the decades of criming finally, maybe potentially to catch up with him. One of the things that, that I've always found deeply worrisome is that because it takes so long, what do they say? Justice grinds slow, but fine. I think we need a new, you know, justice grinds, I don't know, infinitesimally <laughs> and maybe not so fine after all, is that all of these cases in different venues are happening now at around the same time. Also, thanks very much to the fact that Merrick Garland did nothing, nothing for over a year, which is unforgivable. So I could see if you're so inclined to be paranoid and to think that Donald Trump really is somebody who's unfairly targeted. I can see where it might seem like that because have so many people coming after him at the same time because he's committed so many crimes. But again, it seems so unlikely. Like, how could that be possible? How could somebody possibly get away with all of that for so long? And it's only now when he's running again. I don't know, man. You know, for those of us who who prefer reality, the problem is that it's so obvious that he's guilty especially in Georgia and in this documents case, like how can you like, why does it take so long? The evidence has already been presented and it's evidence in his own words. Right. Exactly. I do think like one of the things when we look back on like how American democracy barely survived, that's what my that's going to be my (laughs) that's my top line because I don't want Uh it to die. uh, But, you know, when we look back on this time, we're going to you know, I think one of the things we're going to say is that like if Merrick Garland had moved a little faster then, you know, like he I mean, you we all saw in real time last year when Trump decided to run because he knew it would hurt their chances of being able to prosecute him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was it. That was we saw that happen in real time. And now, you know, he's up there and Republicans are saying they're trying to keep him from running for president. There's not a Republican in the world who really believes that, except maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene. No, she doesn't. Um, Bobert might. <laughs> Right, Bobert. Right, <laughs> and your 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 favorite former stupidest person in Congress, Louis Gobert, and yeah, you know, maybe a, a couple of others like Gosar, but <laughs> they don't believe any of it. And I think that's it, the cynicism of all of this is is a, another thing that is so debilitating. Donald's breathtaking cynicism of literally running for the highest office in the land, not because he gives a shit about America. And not because he cares about the Constitution, which he's never read, but because he wants to stay out of jail. And it's easier to grift from the Oval Office. Almost every single elected Republican, having made the political calculation that right now they're stuck with him. So 
what are you going to do? Every single one of them, even if, I mean, two, maybe two people have spoken out against him, the rest are either completely in his corner or like McConnell are saying nothing, they'll all vote for him if he gets the nomination. I mean, that's just beyond that too serves to legitimize him in the minds of many, many millions of people, which has always been one of the most dangerous things. Right, right, right. No, I mean, it's just, I mean, I guess I know how we got here. You know all the parties here, I feel like. And you have this psychological, I've talked about this when I've had you on the podcast before, but I think it's really important you have this psychological perspective of like what it's like to live with a person who has this sort of weird pathologies that your uncle has. How does this play now? If you're going to game it out, you don't have to be right, but just like psychologically, he keeps going. I mean, my sense is he never quits. Oh, no, 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 he can't. Because look, for two reasons, one is because he he literally believes, and he may not be wrong, that his future freedom depends on getting into the White House. So there's that. The other thing, and we see this with, very clearly in the documents case, is he can't admit he's wrong. And course correcting, mature people understand it as taking in information, processing it, understanding that you need to go in a different direction. It doesn't mean, oh my God, I was wrong and I have to admit I was wrong and now I have to do something else. But that's Donald's perspective. If I course correct, then I have to admit I'm wrong and I can never be wrong. So he's on this path. And the only thing that takes him off of the path is, is some external force, which remains to be seen because right now it doesn't look like any of these cases, any of them will interfere with his ability to run for office, which is insanity. The one thing that does surprise me, it's very difficult to be reminded repeatedly that our system uh, is in place to protect those who want to destroy it. Like for whom is this justice? I don't even know. And that's the other thing that gets lost here. This is a crime against the people of the United States. It's not like he did something wrong and it was a crime against the White House or whatever. Right, right, right. Exactly. You know, this is a guy with serious mental illness. He's got serious psychiatric disorders and they're untreated. Any untreated illness, no matter what it is, worsens over time. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. And we see instances of that. Like he has literally no impulse control anymore. He used to be able to go into a deposition and, you know, just say, I don't know, don't remember. No, I and just play it that way. Now he just can't shut up. Uh, and he, as we saw in the um, fabulous CNN town hall, and <laughs> as we saw at Bedminster the other night, he is really good at continuing to incriminate himself. Really good. Yeah. But, you know, he's not decompensating in a way that renders him in, in totally incapable of continuing. And I think, again, that's because the guy's always been institutionalized. He's always had people around him, you know, doing everything for him. Uh, he has so much stolen money that, you know, he can hire people. He doesn't have to feed himself. He doesn't have to do, buy clothes for himself. He doesn't have to do lift a finger uh, to do the rest of the things all of us have to do in order to survive in this world. And I think that's partially what kind of holds him together better than he would be holding up if he had to live a life in the real world. Right. That's what I think, too. I just think that this is how it's going to go now. And there's no recourse. And I think it seems like that George Conway is right, that eventually he just destroys the Republican Party and not the rest of us. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, if his destruction can be limited to the Republican Party, that's that's great. But there's no guarantee of that because, as as you know as well as anybody, the Republican Party is on a mission to make sure that they don't have to win anymore in order to get their person in the White House. Right. And that is ultimately why we should all be very, very worried. Mary <laughs> Trump, please come back soon. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be a long journey and uh, <laughs> we definitely need to be sticking together. That's for sure. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lachlan Cartwright is an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast and author of the newsletter, Confider. Welcome to Fast Politics, Lachlan Cartwright. G'day, good to be here, Molly. So Lachlan, you write one of the absolutely best media newsletters in all of media world, and you get all the scoops, and your newsletter is called Confider, and your tagline is... Everyone loves it until they're in it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's free and you can subscribe on the dailybeast.com confider. So let's talk about what's happening right now. Last week was a huge week for CNN, and I'm hoping you could talk to us about what is happening on one of the most famous cable news channels. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been a a, a quite um, turbulent period for CNN, you know, a little over a year ago, it was announced that Chris Lick was being named as the CEO and and chairman, replacing Jeff Zucker, who was a legendary figure and incredibly well-liked by not only the talent at CNN, but by producers, journalists. He was an incredibly warm figure in the newsroom and a real presence. So they went from Zucker, who who was ousted over this relationship he had with Alison Goldholst, who also worked at CNN. Then Chris Lick came into the building and you know, almost immediately uh, put people off by moving up to an office uh, well above the, the newsroom, not taking a Zucker's old office, turning that into a conference room, and then you know making changes like firing uh, Brian Stelter. So people were uh, incredibly wary of him on the way in. 
but he did nothing to really, you know, win the support of the uh, the rank and file. And things just kind of got worse from there. He, you know, declared at a town hall there wouldn't be layoffs. Well, actually, months later that there were layoffs, and just a, a series of, of missteps and you know, self inflicted wounds, which really built to the Trump town hall, which you know was an utter unmitigated disaster. And then you know, finally the Tim Alberta. Uh, Atlantic profile, you know, that really left uh, David Zasloff, um, uh, you know, the head of Warner Discovery, with with no choice uh, but to to um, to resign him. Um, and uh, and Leek uh, exited the building uh, last week, and in his place, there's kind of a a four person management team now: uh, David Levy, Amy Antelis, uh, Eric Sherling, and Virginia Mosley. While they go on this this search for a, a new CEO, but they're in no hurry to make that decision. I think they've learned their lesson uh, in the fact that you know they didn't interview anyone for Zucker's position. As I joke in confider, Chris Lick is our favorite schmoozer, basically because he schmoozed his way into this into this gig, and Zaz didn't interview anyone. There wasn't a search; he just appointed. Lick and that totally blew up on him. So they will take their time. Uh, they you know, they're basically settling everything down right now. They'll take the summer and and uh, you know see cast a wide net and see what emerges uh, in the fall. So the crew that is in there right now too, these are really old school CNN people who really know what they're doing. Will you talk a little bit? I mean, I feel like they sort of went, you know, they had brought someone in who was not a CNN person and now they have a real kind of safety net again. Yeah. I mean, Amy and tell us, and we could probably start there because my money would be on her as the red hot favorite to be named a CEO. She's been at CNN five decades She's incredibly well-respected, incredibly well-liked, and she was there before Zucker. She was there during Zucker. She survived under Lick. She's now steadying the ship again. Um, and, you know, different people I speak to in the building just say she's completely unflappable. She is a very cool head in what has been quite a disruptive time. Then you've got Virginia Mosley, who's head of news gathering, again, someone that is you know, a safe pair of hands. My money probably wouldn't be on her taking the reins. You know, She is managing the ship day to day. Eric Sherling is um, a well-accomplished producer. And then David Levy is um, one of Zaz's lieutenants. And he's kind of really sort of more on the corporate front. But it's, it's these four who are steadying the ship Particularly, Amy is someone that uh, people internally really like, really respect. And after the leak debacle, is someone that I, you know, I'd be putting my money on as uh, as the favorite to take over as CEO. So, what happens now to like the people who didn't survive the licked administration? Like, I mean, is there a world where any of those people you think come back, or do you think it's just that they are sort of collateral damage? I mean, Chris Lick is an incredible, well-accomplished showrunner. Joe, yeah, much success there. CBS This Morning, on to Colbert. There's a couple of things here we really need to dig into. The, the first being is the hand of, of Zaz. So, you know, David Zaslov was really in the background during Lick's entire tenure, you know, giving him advice, stroke orders. Lick was carrying that out, carrying out Zaslov's vision of bringing CNN you know, more into the center having Republicans on. And so, you know, I, I definitely think Lick can bounce back. I think it's going to take a little bit of time. But, you know, he went from running, uh, and I've pointed this out in Confider, he went from running shows of, you know, two dozen, max three dozen staffers to running a 4,000-person international news network. I mean, that's a huge leap. And so you've got to really put a lot of this back at the feet of David Zasloff. And I think the wider theme is, is Zaz going to back off for the next person? If it is Amy Intellis, is she going to have to deal with late night, early morning phone calls from David Zaslov saying, yeah, we need to put this person on or we need to do more of this or less of this. And so I do feel for, for Chris Licht, I think he was in an impossible position, particularly towards the end of this mess. I do think there's a world where he, he comes back in another capacity, probably running something a lot smaller than CNN, but certainly a showrunner for uh, for a, a major show. And then, you know, the people around him that uh, that took the hit, the CNN PR people who were blamed for the, the Tim Alberta profile, they can certainly they can certainly bounce back. There's a world where they they come back 
in different different industries or different capacities in the in the news business it was a you know a, a mess that there were a lot of factors that contributed to it. I would say that you know David Zasloff has a you know, a very prominent role to play and responsibility here. Zaslov, why does he control CNN? Just explain that, can you? Yeah, I mean, well, he heads up, you know, Warner Discovery. And when uh, Discovery took over Warner, they obviously took on CNN. And he has kind of made this, I guess, a, a pet project of his with, I think, you know, in the background, John Malone, who's a, you know, on the board of Warner Discovery and has voiced his, I guess, displeasure at the way CNN went in all on the uh the resistance and in on giving uh, so much airtime to to Trump, he has kind of I think made it a mission of his to to reshape uh, CNN's as love has, and has really been in the background whispering in Lick's ear. And yeah, Lick has been carrying out that vision. So you know, having more Republicans on the air, getting rid of Brian Stelter, you know, all of these are are things that Malone and and Zaslav wanted, and Lick was just carrying that that vision out. The show that Brian Stelter hosted was a show called Reliable Sources, and it was a show about the media. And it was really the only media show on television. It was around for, you know, a couple of decades. Now it's gone. Do you think that there should be a show about the media on cable? You know, I mean, there's is there stuff to learn from this kind of like a television show about the media? And do you think not having it is problematic? Yeah, I think coming into an election year, I think it is helpful to have a program that analyzes and criticizes the media, whether that's on cable or whether that's, you know, a digital property. You know, I think there is a, an audience for that. You know, I think it was always very curious that one of Leek's first major moves was to fire Brian Stelter. I mean, what was the urgency in canceling that show? And what was the need to fire that bloke? You know, you could have rehoused him as a correspondent or an on-air pundit. You know, that that move, that first move, you know, and I've wrote, written about this in Confider, that was the hand of John Malone and David Zaslov, no doubt. They were in Leek's ear, you know, saying, let's let's show Republicans and let's show people that we're making some changes here. And Brian Stelter was a sacrificial lamb. While things do seem to be, I guess, a steadying a, a tad, the damage that's been done to this network, particularly in the ratings, is something that is going to take a long time to rebuild. MSNBC is just absolutely smashing it right now and creaming CNN. I mean, this week, particularly uh, with the indictment, you would have thought would have been a, a big week for for CNN. And while they're up a little bit, MSNBC is just absolutely crushing it right now. And they even beat Fox in, in primetime this week. So, you know, it, it is important to note that there's been some real reputational damage done to CNN. And in the ratings particularly, this is going to take uh, some time for them to, uh, to, to rebuild. So interesting. Uh, talk to me about Washington Post. Yeah. So look, WAPO um, this week, the, the publisher, Fred Ryan, stepped down, you know, after you know, what has really been uh, a, you know, last 12 months, a period of tumult. They've lost a lot of talent. A lot of big name uh, reporters have departed to, to rival outlets. They've also lost a lot of important people on their, their business side. And there's just been this simmering tension that has got, been going on between the newsroom and Fred Ryan, the publisher. And a lot of this has to do with the, the positioning of, of WAPO coming out of the Trump years. You look at the New York Times, they really built a subscription business, not just off the back of the, the great journalism they produced, but Wordle, the cooking, acquiring the athletic. And WAPO really didn't make you know any kind of similar you know savvy moves. So they've started to lose subscribers. And added to that, the newsroom really started to lose confidence in their in their publisher. He made some uh, comments at a, a town hall last year about, about layoffs and then wouldn't take any questions. So there has been kind of a, a, a sense that he had lost the, the support of the, the newsroom. And then Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, made a visit back in January, I think sensing that there was you know, some issues playing out and also some tension between the editor-in-chief, Sully Busby, and, and Ryan. And Bezos made a visit, also met with different key staff, I guess, to try and 
read the room temperature. And then several months later, you now have the publisher who's departed, which I think people that I've spoken to at WAPO in the last week are really rejoicing over, uh, hoping that um, this now turns a corner. Even though he was there for a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, he's been there for you know several years. Yeah, it was someone that the newsroom had just really lost confidence in. Yeah, he he was he wasn't able to make any sort of clear decisions about what the direction of the Washington Post was going to take. You know, post the the Trump years, and I, I think there were a couple of missteps there that has really cost them. You know, some key talent and an ability to drive subscribers. When you look at the success of the Times. Um, the moves they've made, you know, WAPO has really been left behind. So interesting. We're now in another Trump. We're in like 2015 all over again because. What a time to be alive, Molly. What a time to be alive. I'm not sure we are, but it's 2015 ad nauseum. Do you think that there are lessons to be learned from that time in the way that Trump gets free media. Yeah, I think there are lessons to be learned. And I just look around, I don't think anyone has has learned them. <laughs> That's depressing. We've gone back to the, the future. And uh, yeah, you look at what happened after uh, the indictment. You know, he just turned it into a campaign rally again. And look, MSNBC and a couple of other networks cut away but I picked up the Times straight after that. There was, you know, I think a, a double page spread about it. He is a, a master at manipulating the press, and I, I, I'm just not sure if if the media has has caught on to that. It's such an impossible, impossible problem. I mean, I think everyone, I think everyone's grappling with it, and I think that that's the first part that everyone is acknowledging. We're going back into this, but I don't think the the lesson has been fully fully learned. And, you know, as we get closer to this, to, to going back through it, you know, I, I can just see a world in which, you know, we just have back to back coverage of this bloke and, you know, allowing him to, to manipulate the press like he did, you know, the last couple of go rounds. Oh, Lachlan Cartwright, thank you for giving me a heartburn. Please come back soon. Confider, the Daily Beast. Hi, it's Molly and I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Paul Kane is the Washington Post senior congressional correspondent. Welcome to Fast Politics, Paul Kane. All right. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. We really wanted to have you because you've written about this. It seems like there's some pretty exciting, and by exciting, I mean what is happening with the Republicans in Congress. I think this started with the debt ceiling compromise. So it has created this incredibly fascinating story, which I'm not seeing a ton of coverage of. So I would love you to walk us through it. So, yeah, you go back to the night of May 31st, you have this really surprising, big bipartisan vote for the debt ceiling lift, which, you know, comes with some spending constraints on what President Biden can do. But it, you know, clears this path for two years. It gives a budget outline for two years, which should make it easier to avoid a government shutdown on funding the federal agencies later this year and next year. So it was a good moment. And, you know, Speaker McCarthy, against all, you know, expectations, got more than two thirds of his conference to vote for this bill. I mean, were you surprised? I was surprised because it was, you know, the, the deal was sort of announced on a Saturday evening that it was going to happen. And then, it, you know, the bill text came out on Sunday evening. And there were a couple of days there where it felt like, you know, 
it felt like it was an airliner that was sort of losing altitude <laughs> and, and momentum. And there were a couple of people here and there who announced that they were opposed. And sources of mine who were chiefs of staff or rank and file types were like, oh, my God, she's going to vote against this. That's that's not good. But then it just got a sort of reassuring amount of support from People who in the past would have been the Republican rebels. My friend at the New York Times, Carl Hulse, has dubbed them the mutineers. The mutineers of the past, people like Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Thomas Massey, were all in support of this bill. Even though Marjorie Taylor Greene called it a shit sandwich. Yes, yes. It reassured things and there was still some angry antagonists out there, but it appeared as if they were going to walk away feeling like, you know, all right, everybody was saying, are you guys going to try to do this quote unquote motion to vacate and expel McCarthy being speaker? And what we lost track of in all of that is we were kept saying, are you going to expel McCarthy? And they're like, no, no, no. Stop asking that question. What they had decided to do was not to force a vote that where they could try and kick Kevin McCarthy out as speaker, they decided to simply shut down the House floor. You know, the way it works on any bill that is of of real substance, you have to go to the Rules Committee, and the Rules Committee is the one that then decides on how many amendments are in order, how they'll be voted on, you know, is this up or down, is there, you know, all sorts of aspects of the debate, how long, how how much time each side gets. And so the Rules Committee sets that out, and then you go to the floor, and the full House has to approve that rule before the actual debate can begin. And so lo and behold, these 11 to 12 rebels, mutineers, antagonists, far-right faction, choose your phrase for whatever you want to call them, they had a little sneak attack, and they decided to tank this rule, you know, he's only got a margin of four, five votes, depending on attendance uh, on that particular day. McCarthy does. And they had they had, you know, 11 to 12, depending on the moment, who decided they were going to vote against the rule. And when it comes to voting on the rule, just by tradition, it is almost always the majority party that carries the rule. And so the minority party never puts up any votes. They did so to pass the debt ceiling bill on May 31st. To avoid financial catastrophe. Yes. Extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, with the imprimatur of Joe Biden saying, yes, this is a good bill. Let's vote for it. And so but not they're not going to do that day in and day out. So McCarthy has to get his side to approve a rule so that you can get to legislation. And so they just decided they were going to shut down the floor of the House as a bit of revenge. Now, what they were doing was impaling themselves. This was a this was legislation that was all about, you know, just sort of hot button culture issue type of stuff. Wasn't it the gas stove legislation? So this is a messaging bill that says that something blah, 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 gas stoves, right? Yes. And it has no hope of of passing. The Senate was never going to take it up. The president is never going to sign it. The only reason this bill, there was a package of them on other regulatory uh, issues. The only reason this bill was coming to the floor was to appease people the right on the right wing faction. But they who like gas stoves. Yes. But they decided to make their point. They were willing to block their own bill. So. They wanted to shut the floor down. And, you know, that happened on a, yeah, it's, it is, well, it's the strange world of Congress, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the way you mean is by punching yourself in the face. That's what they did. And it took about a, a week, a week and a half to sort of unpack this whole problem. And they, they basically kept having these meetings in McCarthy's office trying to say, We want to get more assurances, more concessions that we thought we had gotten back in January. You know, we want to reopen that agreement. They were talking, they were using that phrase 
as if this was actually some sort of binding contract that we had all seen. What? That McCarthy was running for speaker? I mean, how would that even work? Well, no, way back in January when he had to go through those 15 different votes, McCarthy had gave in all a bunch of concessions, a lot that we know about, some that we don't know about that were you know, pretty big gives to the far right, giving them seats, giving them seats on important committees like the House Rules Committee, like the House Appropriations Committee, um, giving them giving them the device by which they could expel McCarthy from from being speaker. Uh, And so they thought they had certain commitments from him and they might be stretching the truth here, but they thought that they could reopen this and try and get like ironclad guarantees that you will never again pass a bill just with Democratic votes or, or, you know, where the majority, the majority on that big vote on the debt ceiling actually had fewer votes than the minority. There were 149 Republicans, but there were 165 Democrats. They wanted to just talk about this stuff, invent about this stuff, and they wanted to try and get a few more concessions out of them. And they did. You know, the thing about Kevin McCarthy that you have to understand is that he's going to cave. It's a math problem. He knows that the only way he can, quote unquote, govern is to give in to his to his exotics. Uh, and that means that you started seeing other things pop up. Like there was a pretty far reaching attempt to not let people regulate guns and gun ammunition that got thrown into this package of, of bills that was considered sort of out of nowhere. One of the far, far, far right members, Anna Paulina Luna, offered a censure resolution to Adam Schiff. <laughs> right. That was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. What she just threw that in there just to, like, get everybody upset. Yeah. It just became an additional thing, an additional demand. Like, we're going to have this vote on the floor. And, you know, the leadership was like, all right, we'll let you have the vote, but you're probably going to lose. And sure enough, they, they did have the vote and they did lose as uh, almost 30 House Republicans voted against censuring Schiff. And they were going to include an insane $16 million fine toward him. That was just absolutely unheard of. And this is all going back to statements he made about uh, Russia's attempts to interfere in the 2016 election. This was really playing toward Trump in all of the ways possible. These are their demands. These are the things that they want to see happen. And McCarthy is repeatedly giving in. It's unbelievable. It's almost like a hostage situation now, right? It is. It's it's different than a hostage situation because that those situations end. They end one way. <laughs> they end one way or another way. And one way is like safe and sound and somebody's paid a ransom. Um, and the other way is not good at all. This is just a repeated gathering of the hostage takers with the hostage. And they are just, you know, regularly meeting with him to explain the next time they might hold him hostage. And right. if you you can avoid this next moment, if you give us this, this and this now. And the response generally from McCarthy is, OK, well, have your vote. Go go put this crazy gun bill on the floor. Go do the censure resolution. OK, you've got it. There's a there's a lurking new demand that a uh, Utah Republican, Chris Stewart, is resigning um, midterm and it's effective in September. He's on the Appropriations Committee. It's a really important committee that controls all the federal spending. And the far right is putting down their marker now saying we want one of our own to get that that committee slot. You know, these things are just evolving. So that's why I'm saying it's not like your standard hostage situation where there's a standoff and it's done and finished. It's kind of never finished. It's this ongoing amorphous hostage holding. So it's a forever hostage situation, which I <laughs> like a lot. But so if you want to put one of these far right people on the appropriations, what I think is a little bit interesting about this debt ceiling debacle is that what happened was that there actually was really a schism in that group. Right. I mean, the people who supported it 
are not the people who are mad at McCarthy right now, right? I mean, they are like his people. So, I mean, there are people on the far right who are putting sand in the gears, right? Like people like Matt Gates. Yes, there is a real divide. We've had for years now, since about 2014 or 15, whenever the Freedom Caucus was founded by the farthest, the two to three dozen farthest right Republicans, we've sort of used that as just quick code word, Freedom Caucus. But what you're seeing this year is that there is there are some real divides within that group of about three dozen. There's a dozen or maybe up to two dozen who are kind of friendly to, to McCarthy. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan are the, the best examples of it. They They realize that McCarthy is weak and they can pretty much do almost whatever they want with McCarthy as speaker. So they like that. They like right. him. He lets them do whatever they want. He never tells them that they have to stop. And so the last thing they want is to have a new speaker who might try to be, you know, enforce some discipline. But Matt Gates is not happy. Matt Gates is part of this faction of about a dozen or so who are both the most ardent Trump supporters <laughs> and also some of them, like Chip Roy of Texas, are really hardcore Tea Party descendants and they actually believe in small government and less spending. And they actually kind of tend to gravitate more towards Ron DeSantis because they served in Congress with DeSantis and they actually kind of, you know, they don't admit this publicly, but they know that Trump is really a sellout to most of their ideological conservative causes. Trump Trump doesn't care about spending and debts and deficits, you know, at all. And so this group of about 12 or so of them are the hardest, you know, the hardest farthest to the right in that caucus. And they are going to repeatedly make things tough on McCarthy. And that's where he's he's dealing with that group, that 12 to 14 of them are. It's not the whole three dozen or so that are in the Freedom Caucus. It's that last dozen that are are causing the biggest problems right now. So interesting. So we do have a debt ceiling deal. It will carry America until this this next uh, election. So that is not going to come up. What do you see in the future on the calendar that could? I mean, a lot of this stuff is it's annoying for Republicans, but it doesn't have any larger implications for the rest of us. True. There are there's sort of two things and they're intertwined that are the next big landmines that are out here on the horizon where where Congress will once again, through its own self-inflicted behavior, become a big story again. Uh, by the end of September, you have the annual funding bills for federal agencies that come due. In the previous four to five years, we had just sort of gotten into this rhythm. It's not really rhythm at all. It's arrhythmic where you don't meet the deadline of September 30th and you punt, you keep the government open at what's called a continuing resolution. And eventually by either the mid of, middle of December or sometimes late February, early March, they pass all the funding bills in one big massive thing that we call an omnibus bill. Well, House Republicans hated those bills and they did not want to do that. So this time they thought that they had set this up where you could start passing these bills one by one. There's supposed to be a dozen of them that pass individually. But now this hard right faction has said, we don't like these spending levels that you agreed to with Joe Biden. So we demand, we hereby demand that you write these bills at about $120 billion less than what you had agreed to. Uh, with Biden. And and also you can't cut at from defense, veterans affairs or border security. How would that work? It would work by if it were to actually become law, it would mean that places like, you know, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Justice, Department of Education, Parks and National Park Service would all get big, massive cuts of uh, 10, 15, 20 percent, which would probably be pretty unpopular if it were ever enacted into law. Right. And it's it's if they actually are going to make some of their 
swing district moderates take those votes, those are not good votes, whether they end up in law or not, and sort of become like made to order political attack ads for Democrats to run against them. It's setting up this system where the Senate is going to write their funding bills at the agreed upon level. And the House is not, and the House is going to vote, move them at much lower. And so it becomes very hard to figure out how to pass those two things. If the Senate and the uh, House are 120 billion apart, moreover, at some point later this year, the Biden administration is going to come in with a request for Ukraine war funding, and they're going to need tens of billions of more dollars to support Zelensky and the war effort. And that is going to be a very, very tricky vote. Normally, you would see that tacked on to one of these spending bills, and it would just be a rider, a so-called rider. Um, right now in the Republican Party, you know, thanks to a lot of vitriol by Tucker Carlson and some others, they've really built up a, an antipathy toward this war. And a lot of members of the House Republican Conference, even the ones that are traditional anti-Russia hawks, are really, really leery of casting that vote for Ukraine war funding. And now if you're going to tack that onto a bill that is driven by the Senate and has higher funding levels for these government agencies than the far, far right wanted to, to put on them. Now you've got some real serious potential consequences here where you could have a government shutdown at some point later in the year. And then you could also have the new hostage here could be funding for the Ukraine war. And that's going to get really difficult because I think Donald Trump will come out heavily against that. Trump stayed silent on the debt ceiling deal because, as I said earlier, deep down, he really doesn't care about debts and deficits, and it's not his thing. But we have seen repeatedly over and over, he does not want us funding the war against Putin, and he will most likely come out very much against that, and it will become a harder and harder vote for McCarthy. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much, Paul Kane. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. This was fun. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jong Fast, this Michael Knowles fellow, a lot of people don't realize that he's one of those Daily Wire hosts that is like arguably in the top five most popular podcast hosts on the internet, even though he flies under most people's radar. And I'm going to tell you something. You'll be shocked. He's a little extreme. He's not even a little extreme. He sucks. And he's also radicalizing whoever it is who's listening to that podcast. And his new thing is that he's very furious. By the way, their whole thing is they're just furious, right? That's the shtick. They're furious about Outrage everything. Right. And right now they're outraged about the pride flag. And so the Daily Wire's Michael Knowles, he's like Ben Shapiro, but sort of a little bit longer. <laughs> The pride flag is, quote unquote, offensive to all normal people and should be banned from all public spaces because it's evil and degenerate. It is neither evil nor degenerate. But what is evil and degenerate is that these guys are brainwashing our youth. And so they are our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. 
I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.